from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the rise of vertical farming, the biggest renewable energy company you've never heard of, can Stufter helps jumpstart the circular economy, and scaling cleantech through advanced manufacturing. We're making things again this week on 350. It's August 19th, 2016. Welcome back to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. We're back from a summer hiatus. And uh, as always, I'm here with GreenBiz senior writer, Lauren Hepler, and podcast producer, Saraya Melkonian. Hey, Lauren. Hey there. Yeah, shaking off the rust. Where have you been? Uh, I have been in Morocco, so I'm hoping I can still string a sentence together. So Uh, far, so good. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I was there just on vacation, sort of getting in some surfing, seeing the big cities, but it was interesting. We went through Marrakesh, where it was a balmy 115 degrees, all kinds of stuff going on getting ready for COP22. COP22, yeah, we'll talk about that in one second, but you learned to surf in Morocco? I did, That's yeah. a great story you'll be able to tell. <laughs> I know, I know. Can you tell us now? What'd you learn? Well, I can effectively stand up, which I was pretty <laughs> pleased with myself, uh, but I learned outside the city called Agadir on the Atlantic coast. Uh, A little cooler there. That was nice. But yeah, I don't have the same great whites that you have in Northern California. So I appreciated that. And uh, and who taught you? Uh, actually, the champion of Moroccan surfing. Wait, Shout out to wait, Red One. No way. Yes, yes, it's true. We went to a great little place called Surf Berbier, sort of playing off the Berber culture around there. And the instructors were really fun. Highly recommend if you happen to be in the neighborhood. <laughs> I'm on my way. Um, and um, Soraya, where you been? Uh, I was in Belize for just a week, but got into see the coral reefs over there, swim with some sharks, and really beach it up. Do you do a little snorkeling? I was say snorkeling and diving? Uh, Not diving, I guess, but yeah, snorkeling with a lot of nurse sharks and rays and turtles and tons of tropical fish. And yeah, it was Uh, really, really great. Are they concerned or did you hear any concern about coral reef there and the state of that? Is it bleaching or is anything going wrong? I didn't hear that much about it, Um, but you can see like a lot of coral that is bleached. I don't know if that's part of the natural process there, but I think we should be concerned about all the coral reefs right now. Well, we are. Well, welcome back, both of you, and let's get to the Week in Review. So let's begin this week talking about advanced manufacturing. Lauren, you did a piece this week that we'll get to in a second, but this is a really interesting area that I've taken particular interest in and through through my recent book, The New Grand Strategy, looking at how advanced manufacturing uh, is part of this larger arena of resource productivity and how a host of new technologies, not the least of which is 3D printing, but many, many others, um, is uh, key to the circular economy, the resource revolution, and so many other parts of what is all within the sustainability rubric. Uh, so, Lauren, what did you find? So there's a lot going on here. I think I was just joking before we went on air that it took literally close to 10 minutes for Mark Johnson 
who is the director of the Advanced Manufacturing Institute at the Department of Energy, to really just summarize what the government is working on in partnership with private industry on all of these things. Like you said, big ideas. Not only are you talking about sort of digitizing and advancing the manufacturing process, but also bringing in concepts around the circular economy, next-gen chemicals. There really is a lot here. And some of those are things that are pretty high profile. Uh, Like President Obama has talked about his quest to get 15 manufacturing innovation institutes up and running by the end of this year. But there's also an advanced semiconductor institute in North Carolina, a smart manufacturing institute based out of L.A. um, that is a partnership of 200 companies, academics, NGOs. So lots of different stuff under this umbrella. Yeah, last year I was in uh, Youngstown, Ohio, where I visited uh, an organization called America Makes. It's one of these 15 regional institutes that the called the National Network for Manufacturing Innovation that Obama uh, committed to. And this one's called the National Additive Manufacturing Innovation Institute. So it's it's, called, it's known dual-branded as America Makes, but it's about additive manufacturing, a.k.a. 3D printing. Mm-hmm. And I, I was really, uh, my eyes were really open there in terms of what the potential was for 3D printing or what a potential is for 3D printing uh, in uh, in the implications for sustainability and how that changes the game, not just by making things by additive as opposed to subtracting where you're cutting away and you know, drilling and all that stuff, but actually make by doing that, allowing things to remain in service so much longer, uh, which is key to the circular economy. Mm -hmm. And with 3D printing and other manufacturing technologies, it's an interesting dynamic where Mark with the DOE was talking about, you hear a lot about these concerns about upfront capital, but he said really what they're most concerned about is making sure that there's long-term follow-on investment to really develop these things over time and get them out there at scale um, and sort of get them in the hands of the companies that are making the products that fuel our economy. Yeah, and I, I think this is interesting for lots of reasons. One is that I don't think most Americans appreciate what's going on now at the within the federal government to, well, make America <clears throat> great, you know, in a lot of ways. I mean, <laughs> oh, just, <no. laughs> you know, but I mean, just for example, America makes uh, six federal agencies, Commerce, Education, Defense, Energy, and NASA and the National Science Foundation working with a whole bunch of aerospace firms and companies like Hewlett-Packard and, and others who are uh, you know, trying to figure out how do we create new manufacturing centers? How do we accelerate these technologies? And, and how do we do it in a way that really contributes not just to prosperity, but also security and sustainability? Mm-hmm. And just to give you a little flavor of how the people that are in charge of some of these things within the government are thinking about them, here's a quick snippet of my chat with Mark Johnson, again, the director of the Advanced Manufacturing Institute at the Department of Energy, talking about the circular economy and the economic models that can gird the next generation of manufacturing. Manufacturing is a key element of the innovation ecosystem that we wind up having. Um, you know, we can we can do a lot. We want to invent new technologies relevant to energy, but where you get those real breakthrough adoption moments is when the technology drives to the point where it reaches cost parity because of manufacturing innovations, so that we can wind up uh, adopting that on an economical basis as a society. Um, and that often requires a, a sustained amount of research and development beyond just the initial invention of a technology, but is actually really how do you wind up solving all those uh, secondary and, and tertiary um, science and technology questions that come up because you're trying to manufacture that on a cost-effective basis. 
So, you know, by analogy, roll that back 100 years, you know, Henry Ford didn't invent the automobile. What he invented was the manufacturing process. You know, the automobile was invented 50 years earlier. It's inventing the manufacturing process that makes it cost effective to for transportation by, by a vehicle um, instead of using a horse at the time. One of the things I find most interesting about all this, Lauren, is that, you know, for all of the business benefits and the environmental benefits that come out of a lot of these technologies. There's a huge social benefit. I mean, Stefan Heck and Matt Rogers, who wrote the 2014 book called Resource Revolution and talked about this being the biggest business opportunity in a century, talked about the fact that, you know, we're going to see two and a half billion or maybe three billion people coming out of poverty and into the middle class between over the next, you know, two decades or so. And accommodating their needs is going to be, you know, building cities, roads, homes, vehicles, growing food, making furniture, clothing, smartphones, everything else that, you know, we need and people expect. And, you know, to put that in perspective, you know, between the Civil War and World War I, about 16% of the world's population industrialized for the first time. This time, it's nearly 40%. So we have a lot of stuff to make, and we're going to need all these advanced manufacturing techniques and technologies to really get where we want to go. And speaking of all the stuff we make, we had a fun piece recently from a friend of GreenBiz, Leo Rowdies, who used to be with Best Buy and is now a professor at the University of Minnesota with the headline, Can Stuffster Become the Uber for Stuff? Uber for X has become a bit of a cliche where, you know, how does that new service or technology become the Uber for something? What What's it going to be the Uber for here? stuff yeah so um leo talks about how he has tested out this new data platform that was created by a seattle-based b corp they are called stuffster um that looks at to tie together some of these big ideas circular economy sort of making better use of all the things that we have floating around in the universe and basically it's an app that lets you keep track of all the things you've bought and then get rid of them when you no longer want them yeah, this is a really interesting company because it's a, an early version of the kinds of companies we're going to see. And we've already seen some swapping companies. You know, there's eBay, of course, and then there's Yertle and some others. This is a little bit more uh, aimed at big companies that put out a lot of products that want to keep track of them. And, you know, to be honest, I was on a panel a few weeks ago with John Atchison, the founder and CEO of Stuffster. So I know just enough about it to, I know stuff about it, <laughs> I guess, to what you can say. But, you know, he referred to it as sort of a baby step towards the circular economy. The problem is, is that a lot of companies, and you think about electronics, is sort of classic, which is why Leo Rowdies was writing about it, because he was sort of the, at the forefront of, of Best Buy's take back, electronics take back program. Uh, most of those companies don't really know what happens to their stuff after they sell it. I mean, they may be through warranty, know the original buyer, but after that, uh, and so keeping track of it and using this app to be able to, to do that is is um, a part of what stuff Stuffster does. Um, is it something that we're going to be using like Uber all the time to you know, track things? No, not really. It's it's a kind of an experiment that not an experiment. It's a kind of an early stage of a of of a company that has potential to really help uh, all of us and all the companies that we buy from know where things are and then get them back or track them as they move along their various lives. And even though you're talking about this being fairly early stage, there are other examples 
of interesting experimentation in this realm at different parts of the supply chain. Uh, So the U.S. Business Council for Sustainable Development, for example, is doing online materials matchmaking for if you've got a bunch of uh, textiles or cardboard or things that companies tend to produce a lot of and have extra lying around. So I think it's really a matter of sort of making those connections and not letting stuff sit around and go to waste. Yeah, well, that's the, you know, the, the five word mantra for the circular economy is keeping the molecules in play. And the the one way to do that is to know where the molecules are and whose molecules they are and what kind of molecules they are. And and once we sort of have the basis for doing that, for understanding what it's made out of and, and where it came from and where it is now and where it might go next, that's really the beginning of creating a truly circular economy. Well, from molecules to megawatts, our senior writer, (laughs) Heather Clancy, had a great story this week. She took us into the world of real estate. So you hear a lot about big uh, private landowners like a Walmart jumping into renewable energy. But she actually looked at a REIT, a real estate investment trust called Prologis. Yeah, and she said, and it's really great, Lee, that if you you were asked to name the three U.S. companies with the largest corporate solar footprints, it's a pretty good chance you'd get at least one of them wrong because Prologis, which is a $65 billion real estate investment trust, controls almost 150 megawatts of solar generating capacity. That's a lot of megawatts, although just to put it in perspective, that's less than, that's a pretty small power plant. And most power plants are now 250 to 500 or even uh, megawatts or even a gigawatt plus for a large uh, natural gas plant these days. Still, that's uh, a lot of, of energy to produce. And it's obviously in a lot of different sites. I, and it's double what it had just five years ago. So I think that's a really interesting trend because we don't think of real estate companies as part of the new distributed energy grid. Mm-hmm. And it does look like from Heather's story that there is a goal to to bump that total up to 200 megawatts by 2020. So I think sort of consistently raising that cap will be important. But even out here in the Bay Area, there's been some interesting talk about the ways you sort of push uh, not only renewable energy installments, but energy efficiency and other sort of uh, key tenants of green building forward, potentially through policy. San Francisco's doing a lot, looking at sort of upping the energy requirements for developers. And of course, you're going to get some pushback that that adds costs. So it's all about sort of the long-term math and whether that will pencil out for the real estate industry. And one of the things I really like about what Prologis is doing, and Heather writes about this, is that they're very consciously now aligning what they're doing with the uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, as we call them, the SDGs. And we've we've talked about that in the past, and we're going to be talking about that a lot more uh, in the next few months or next few years, actually, as, as more and more companies, that concept, which was passed uh, last September by the United Nations, and sort of this year, companies began thinking about it and we had a, 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 a teleconference, uh, our Green Biz Executive Network, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, hosted by John Davies, uh, where companies talked about what they're doing to address the sustainable development goals. Um, and it's pretty interesting because they're actually starting to do that. This is a set of 17 goals uh, that, that set forth on ending hunger and ending poverty and and affecting the climate and creating resilient infrastructure and a number of other things. It was just a really cool sort of almost a side note, but not so side that that this company, Prologis, is now starting to really align what they're doing with the SDGs. 
So as we said at the top of the show, um, vertical farming is on the rise. And uh, sorry, <laughs> literally I couldn't, couldn't help myself. But uh, it's a really interesting part of of where agriculture is going. Uh, sustainable agriculture, uh, regenerative agriculture, possibly even organic agriculture. Um, but uh, Lauren, you wrote a great piece on that. Tell, tell us what's going on. Why are we uh, looking at vertical farming? Yeah, so often gets lumped in with sort of the broader category of urban farming or, or urban ag that is gaining traction in places like um, New York, Singapore, LA, sort of lots of different pockets of activity. Um, but you're seeing more companies, both big incumbents like Fujitsu and some tech players that are looking at um, using their expertise and technology to play with the lighting that you need to grow things like leaf greens and these tall stacks um, but also upstart players Aero Farms is probably the best known uh, but others as well that are looking at sort of uh, how you take a compact real estate footprint and maximize that for food production and I think we need to give a nod here to where so much of this technology began which is of course the cannabis industry right uh, how do you grow intensively indoors and uh, in, a, in a small space um, is, you know, the, the irony is that you used to, uh, go into a hydroponics store, I'm told, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and talk to the, the, the clerk there and they, and he'd say while winking, so how are your tomatoes? <laughs> and now the question is, how are your tomatoes? Or how are your microgreens? Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely part of it. And when I talked to, uh, what I guess they're the first real industry association for vertical farming. It's called the Association for Vertical Farming. It's an international nonprofit that has a presence in Asia, Europe, as well as North America. Um, they talked a lot about how sort of people have worked with the hydroponic industry over the years and sort of started to get used to some of these ideas of plants being cultivated with artificial light. But now, um, as you think about in integrating some of these products into the food stream some people are weirded out by having food that isn't grown in any soil like what are the impacts hmm. on nutrients there are just some different sort of questions that are being asked right now yeah so i get how this is sustainability from the social perspective of growing food and making it more accessible perhaps solving part of the food desert a challenge in in inner cities um, but is this an environmental play what's going on here from that perspective a lot of this is framed in the context of food scarcity, which again sort of brings sustainable development, these longer term questions about how you're going to feed a growing population into play. Um, and advocates of the vertical farming industry do argue that you need uh, sort of maximal efficiency and maximal creativity to meet that challenge. Um, and they argue that you're using less water to do this, you're not needing the amount of soil or the amount of land to cultivate. So that's helpful. But the one thing that you do have to account for here is energy. All those lights take a lot of power. And right now it's pretty nascent in terms of how you would integrate renewable energy potentially, or even if it's really worth it to use synthetic light when you could be using sunlight outdoors. Um, so I actually talked to the Association for Vertical Farming's co-founder, Henry Gordon Smith, about all of this. And here's what he had to say about what we know and what we don't know about the sustainability of vertical farming. Where we are now is people are you know, investing more into it and people continue to take the risk and there's a risky business, vertical farming, but an exciting one, can kind of get into that. Now, there's a flurry of sustainability benefits that you see kind of populated on the internet about vertical farming. But we feel it's our responsibility as an organization to ask the proper questions because it's not good enough to say, 
we're producing green jobs, you know, or we're saving an approximate amount of water. We need to start asking those deeper questions, not, not because we're trying to be tough, but because cities are going to start asking those questions, especially when they start to encourage or discourage this kind of farming. And we think that's a risk to our members. So we're trying to get ahead of the curve and plan for a future where vertical farms become more mainstream. And, and so right now, I think in general, the sustainability of vertical farms, let's say from a quantitative perspective and their quantitative impact, it's still, it's still quite questionable, right? A lot of people need to be tracking more things to answer that question. And what are we really comparing it to? We're trying to compare it to conventional agriculture and even those impacts haven't been quantified appropriately. So we're working in a realm with a, a limited amount of information overall, which makes everyone's job quite difficult. And we're hoping that this is a way to move forward. We're optimistic about the sustainability of the farm, especially from the water perspective and the food miles perspective. But we also want to dig deeper on some of those other impacts, especially for our members, because they are highly variable. It's not a guarantee that a vertical farm is sustainable. And we are trying to get deeper into that challenge. Yeah, I would just add that uh, the efficiency of LED lights is getting much more efficient. There's a theoretical maximum that they'll reach 80% efficiency of the photons. Uh, right now, we're at about 40%. So the LEDs are going to continue to get more efficient. The uh, renewable energy sources are going to also continue to get more efficient, whether it's solar or wind or these renewable sources. And for me, it's a big part of it is just about making the cities more resilient, preparing for climate change. So I think I think it's a matter of like preparing our cities for you know we're not living under a rock or aware that climate change is happening and and you know like how do we prepare for that and as other industries will continue to progress and get better um you know though their technologies will converge with ours so you talked about energy that's one aspect of the environmental impact of all this is what's going to happen is there going to be a standard will there be a lead for microgreens well that just so happened to be the headline of the piece and the answer is maybe so the association for vertical farming has been working with columbia university on some initial studying sort of scoping out of what a standard in this space might even look like in addition to looking at lead they looked at the the fair trade certification the organic certification which people, you know, there's pros and cons to all of them, how much they cost, how, what sort of is on the checklist. You need to hit all of those certifications. But the goal here is within the next, again, long time frame for the urgency of something like food, but within the next five to seven years, they're hoping to really roll this out at scale. Um, and that would hopefully start to answer some of the questions about how you get bigger distribution deals for some of this food and really take the industry from something that's, hey, this is cool, look what a few people are doing in warehouses to something that's practiced at scale. Here's Henry Gordon-Smith from the Association for Vertical Farming again, talking about how his group is going about setting a sustainability standard for this particular branch of food tech. About eight months ago, probably, we, we initiated a study with Columbia University to look at what what you know, what makes the vertical farm sustainable or not, and, and even expanding that to greenhouses and other urban farms. So we wanted them to develop a, a certification scheme, or in fact, even start with what can we learn from other certification schemes that could be applied to vertical farming, and should we develop our own, or should we partner with an existing one? So those students went around and looked at lead, they looked at fair trade, they looked at organic, they did all these different certifications, and concluded that we should develop our own. Why? Because, well, vertical farms are kind of this intersection between farming 
uh, technology and building. So it requires kind of its own unique certification because it, it has all of those things on it. And so they presented a plan to us for how we could get to a viable certification scheme within, let's say, five to seven years, which is how long it typically takes to get a, a certification off the ground. So that study is completed. It presented at our AVF summit in June. And uh, we are now uh, initiating benchmarking with uh, 10 starter farms. First group that will define, um, you know, the first baseline of a sustainable or not sustainable vertical farm. And then we'll basically scale that up until we get to the point where we can actually have a viable and let's say democratic certification uh, available. Well, a growing trend if ever there was one. So we'll check back on that later on. Thanks, Lauren. So Verge is coming up in another few weeks, September 19th to 22nd, to be exact, in Santa Clara, California. That's our annual conference that where technology meets sustainability and how the convergence of technologies changes industries and accelerates sustainability solutions in a climate-constrained world. And one key part of that is something called Verge Accelerate, which is our uh, startup showcase uh, where we have, uh, by both uh, reader votes and, and editor picks and lots of other things, bring together this really interesting group of startup companies to showcase what's going on out there and some of the new innovations. And uh, it's always one of the, the highest rated parts of, of each Verge conference we've ever done. And here to talk about that is the Verge Accelerate impresario, the Verge Director of Engagement, Shauna Rappaport. Welcome, Shauna. Thanks, Joel. Glad to be back. So give us a little preview. How is Verge Accelerate for 2016 shaping up? Yes. Well, you know, year after year, and I think by nature of just the continued growth of Verge, we had a larger pool of higher quality applicants for this year's program than ever before, which was both exciting and also made the process of selecting our finalists that much more challenging. Um, you know, we ended up with a great group of 21 semi-finalists put their one-minute uh, pitch videos to the test to the Verge community and the Green Biz Online community and um, have just whittled that down to our 14 finalists, which we announced last week. I would imagine that trying to describe your your business, your innovation in a minute or less would kind of separate the, the women from the girls, you know? Uh, is that something that uh, you find that some entrepreneurs who have great ideas just can't get it together? Or is that sort of the, uh, just sort of become de rigueur these days? Well, that's a really good question. And, you know, it is an important part of what we look for is both the ability to articulate what it the problem is that they're working to solve and and why they want to pitch at Verge. That, that Those are really the two prompts that basically with 60 seconds, that's all you have time to address. But, you know, as much as the the showcase is about the quality of the business models and the solutions, it's also about the entrepreneur's abilities to get up on that stage in front of a thousand people and many more tuned into the global live stream and really make a compelling case for why they are looking for investors or investment. So um, it's having those 60 second videos is helpful for us and our judging committee, committee as a way to vet um, who deserves to make it into the final group. And ultimately looking for customers as well. So, so give us a 
flavor. Some of the, some of the examples. Who who are you excited about? Well, I must admit, you know, every year one of the the kind of lenses through which we we curate is really looking for diversity, and that means a lot of things, both diversity of the kinds of solutions, so hardware and software solutions that really cut across all of the Verge domains. Um, not only did we nail that better than ever before this year, but also it's diversity of the people. Right there are a lot of you know young white males that are working as entrepreneurs and it's really important to us um, both at GreenBiz and Verge that we're elevating a diversity of perspectives. So I am proud to say that this year we have a broader range of kinds of solutions across industries and kinds of people uh, pitching than ever before. I'll give you a couple of yep. my favorites. Yep. So we've got, let's see, we've got everything at sort of at the city scale from, you know, cybersecurity for critical infrastructure to software platforms that are enabling the next generation of smart mobility, you know, multimodal transportation solutions, even to a new solution. Get this. They will come and install a beehive on your company's <laughs> roof and manage it for you to support the eco local ecosystems in your neighborhood. How about that? I love the buzz on that already. All right. Good one, Joel. And then, of course, you've got your typical energy solutions, so residential and commercial. Um, and then we've got some really interesting, you know, circular economy is a new track for us this year at Verge. So everything from reimagining how we buy and make apparel to uh, carbon, CO2 recycling, and how that's being used in chemicals and fuels. So... So, so some of these companies, because uh, we've been doing this now for this is maybe our fourth year, and we've done it at Verge Hawaii. So this is we've done a half, maybe five or so of these uh, accelerates. Some of these companies have actually gone on to uh, have some success in large part because of their exposure on stage. Tell us about one or two of them. Yeah, well, that's a great question. In fact, Barbara Grady did a story I think just a few months ago, sort of a "Where Are They Now?" piece. Um, you know, I just was chatting last week with a friend of mine, Aaron Selverston, who because of pitching at Verge Accelerate in 2013, I mean, it's almost a laundry list in terms of bringing on a key advisor, uh, making relationships at Verge that led to FEMA funding. He's created this incredible product in partnership with Autodesk, but now moved on that basically uses, um, you know, like, when you're on vacation and you put a little quarter in the viewfinder to look across the pond, he's basically retrofitted that with um, pretty advanced technology to uh, cycle through different scenarios, including sea level rise and also a lot of real estate um, and development impact. So, and this is a company called Owlized. That's just one example. I mean, he is he is changing the face of climate adaptation. Beyond Verge Accelerate, there's also something you're doing this year called the Startup Showcase. That's right, and I'm really excited about it because it's it's a new level of value that we're working to create, not just for the entrepreneurs who are participating in Verge Accelerate, but actually making Verge accessible to a broader range of entrepreneurs. We're partnering with our with our friends at Energy Accelerator, a number of other um, incubators, Imagine H2O, Clean Tech Open as well, to actually offer a physical space as part of Verge Interconnect, where entrepreneurs from Verge Accelerate and elsewhere are going to be able to have a booth for a day to participate in speed dating with investors and really working in service of advancing the innovation ecosystem. And meet with uh, some of the hundreds of big, big companies that will be in the room who will become their, their customers, funders, uh, licensors, and maybe acquirers someday. So that's all very exciting. Thanks for telling us about Verge Accelerate, Shauna Rappaport. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you.
So we talked a little bit about this concept in our last segment, but one topic that is gaining more and more traction is this idea of the circular economy. And as Joel mentioned, this is sort of the concept of keeping the molecules in play or cutting down on the virgin materials that are used in our economy and our production systems to reuse and cut down waste. And one person that has also been thinking a lot about this is our senior writer, Mike Hauer, who joins me now. How's it going, Mike? Hey, Lauren. How are you? Good, good. So I hear this topic is actually very fresh in your mind. You were at an event in San Francisco talking some of this through. Is that right? Yeah. So last night I moderated a panel at a hotel in San Francisco that was pretty dynamic. We had a representative from Ford, Gap, and then two startups, uh, ThreadUp and Yertle. And uh, we were kind of getting at this idea of, of, of you know, how are, how are companies in, uh, finding ways to cut down on waste uh, and in some cases eliminating the very idea of waste altogether. Uh, you know, Ford is doing some really interesting stuff with materials. Um, they're looking, they're, they have a, a pretty, it sounds crazy at first, but they have a partnership with Jose Cuervo where they're taking the, uh, basically the spent uh, fibers from the agave plant and they're, they're, they, they're not actually using it yet in their products, but they have a lab where they're figuring out ways to, to find second uses for these fibers, which, which uh, I didn't realize, but today they mostly just get burned by the farmers in Mexico, which, you know, as you know, is not the best for that for the environment. Yeah, that's so funny. We had a snippet on that uh, on our last episode before our quick summer break. That's an interesting partnership. And I know they're doing other things with PET, next gen plastics are a big part of this. And like you mentioned, sort of the big idea here um, across companies is cutting down on waste. So I guess at a high level, I'm curious, how do you think about this broad idea of waste and how that applies to our economy? Yeah, so as as I was prepping for this panel, I you know I was wanted to get to the basics of you know what is waste. It's not really something we it's something we just kind of take for granted in our lives. You know, we we consume things, we throw them away, and we don't really think twice about it. Uh, and one of the questions I posed to the audience last night was, you know, can you def- can you give me a, a solid definition of what waste is? And nobody could raise their hand. And uh, you know, so look looking to the dictionary, Merriam-Webster defines waste as the loss of something valuable that occurs because too much of it is being used or because it's being used in a way that is not necessary or effective. And I, that, I, that actually surprised me because, you know, my first thought of waste is definitely not, I mean, it's not something valuable. Usually we think of it as something that's no longer valuable. And uh, so basically, if you, if you redefine waste as the loss of something valuable, you, it really kind of makes you think, why the heck are we okay with a system that is, is institutionalizing this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of flipping that idea on its head. That's interesting. You also had a great piece that we'll be sure to link to in the show notes on sort of key players or companies that are sort of out in front in the circular economy. Mm-hmm. And you broke it down by sort of the smaller upstarts and the big companies. So since we are already talking about Ford, can we delve into some of the interesting things you found in terms of big corporates or multinationals that are playing in this space? Yeah, so I've written a lot about uh, big companies that are engaging in circular economic activities. So Dell is one of them. Dell's doing uh, a lot to cut back on e-waste. Uh, e-waste, as you know, is is uh, becoming an epidemic. Um, you know, there's millions of tons sent to landfills around the world uh, every year. And in the U.S., we have more of an infrastructure to deal with e-waste. But you know, I've been you know I've been to countries like I was in. Uh, I was in Kenya uh, about two years ago, and we were walking through a slum there uh, in Nairobi, where you just see e-waste everywhere. Uh, you know, spent computers, cell phones, 
And it's, it's really bad for the environment, obviously, but it's also really bad for human health. You know, I, I saw kids chewing on circuit boards, which is definitely not good for their health. And because uh, they don't have the infrastructure to deal with e-waste and e-waste is, e-waste is becoming a big issue. And so Dell is doing a lot uh, where they're trying to in- integrate uh, res- basically upcycled materials into their new products. And it's part of their 2020 Legacy of Good plan uh, where they basically have two main objectives. They want to they use 50 million pounds of recycled materials uh, in their products and recover 2 billion pounds of e-waste by 2020. And uh, last I spoke with the Dell people, they seem to be on track. And uh, but there, you know, there's a lot of hurdles, especially in the e-waste world, because it's uh, you know the the regulate the regulatory environment's still pretty uncertain. Um, you know, the infrastructure's not there. Like one of the biggest issues that Dell's dealing with is kind of building this infrastructure out of nothing, and uh, that's where that's why I think it's going to really take uh, kind of a. Um, a team effort from from other players in the in the electronics industry, and they, the electronics industry is actually starting to come together to to focus on that. But uh, it, it's really good to see you know pioneers like Dell to that are making the first steps in that path. Yeah, it definitely seems like electronics. We're hearing more and more about this. Even you have a big gun like Apple. I know they made some headlines a couple mm-hmm. months ago when they uh, introduced this robot that sort of. Uh, deconstructs the iPhone after it's used <laughs> and it's, it's a little bit of it's like how much of this is a novelty how much of this is uh things that can be you know really used at scale in your production processes and you also wrote about energizer batteries obviously sort of one of those notorious sectors for down cycling where materials aren't used at their mm-hmm. full value but you also had uh some big retailers or consumer brands like Levi Strauss and Timberland uh what's going on there in terms of promising efforts yeah, so Levi is doing a lot of great work, uh, kind of both upstream and downstream in their supply chain. So that's another thing that people don't think about. You know, everyone wears jeans today, but people don't realize that jeans have a huge environmental impact, uh, mainly from the cotton that's used to to, to produce it. And uh, and a lot of these uh, these jeans are grown in uh, in Asia, you know, in Asia and Mexico and uh, in places where. The regulatory environment is not really conducive to human health, uh, but it's it's that's actually where uh, pressure from big brands is starting to change that. Uh, and I'd say a lot of that started with consumers. You know, like a, the the '90s when people started focusing more on uh, oh, ma- you know, wow, we're not cool with buying products that are created by sl- uh, sweatshops. That kind of put pressure, you know, initially on companies like Nike that really got them. In, in, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they were interested in this before that, but. It really kind of put that pre- that economic pressure on them to to clean up their supply chains and and Levi's is doing some good stuff where they're working with uh, the uh, they're working actually alongside Gap uh, which was Gap was on the panel last night and they're working with this group called the Sustainable Apparel uh, Initiative and uh, they're it's a group of competitors that has come together to work on uh, developing a way to ensure that. Uh, their supply chains are are both good for the environment by you know cutting down on water waste for example and and also uh, making sure that the working conditions are good for the workers. Um, one of the biggest issues actually this came up last night from the from the lady from Gap who was speaking was talking about upcycling clothing is very challenging um, because. Jeans, for example, you can you can you can use it for. You know, a lot of times they the way it's upcycled now is jeans are kind of tore up and then they use them as you know, insulation and, and other products, which is good. Um, ThreadUp, which is one of the startups that was also on my panel last night, 
it's not exactly upcycling. It's more of reuse. But the way their system works is they they basically curate old clothing. So people instead of uh, donating your clothing to Goodwill, you can uh, you can basically sell your clothing to this company, and then they ba- they basically have standards to make sure that there's certain quality still. And then uh, if you wanted to go buy you know what something that might normally cost you a hundred dollar like a hundred dollar dress, you could get it for a fraction of that, but it's a used dress. And so it's kind of giving second life to those clothing, which, which you know, is in the spirit of the circular economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting when you talk about the permutations of all of this. Uh, like, yeah, sort of if you're doing a new take on thrifting through an app and these yeah, sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but your piece actually inspired a lot of comments, and the questions were around both sort of the global nature of this that you mentioned, where when, with our recycling systems, we do have obviously all different sorts of regulations in different countries, some countries Mm -hmm. that tend to bear the brunt, like you said, of Kenya, of waste in the Western world being shipped off to other places. But the other issue that was raised is sort of this question of what is really circularity versus traditional recycling or even this concept of downcycling, things used at a lower value. What do you make of some of these questions? Yeah, so I I still think that you know, you know, as, as sustainability storytellers like you and I, we're, we're kind of keyed into this. And, but it's still a very, it's still something that most people don't know about. The average consumer doesn't know what the circular economy means. It's, it's something that I think as communicators, we need to do a better job of, 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 of helping people understand the idea. Um, you know, like obviously most people keyed into this have read Cradle to Cradle. Uh, that's kind of a, the, the Bible of the circular economy right now. And while that does paint a very ambitious picture of that we could we could create a perfectly circular world, uh, I mean maybe someday, but I think realistically we need to we need to accept that there's gonna, never going to be a perfectly circular economy. Just like you know when we use the word sustainability, there's never going to be a perfect sustainable company. Uh, you know they're just a more circular economy or a more sustainable company or or, or society. It's 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 an ideal to strive toward more than something that can ever really be att- attained. Um, I do think, you know, when I, whenever I write a story about circular economy, one of the common uh, uh, themes from commenters is, you know, this company is not being truly circular. Like, you know, like for example, the Energizer example, uh, they, they created a battery that has 4% recycled batteries in it, which sounds not that impressive. But actually, uh, when you look at what, how much work it took for them just to get to the 4%, that's a huge, that was a huge accomplishment. That took them about, I think, 10 or 20 years to just get to that point. And because we have to understand that we're we're creating an entire new system here, like it's 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 always going to be uh, it, it's going to always it, there's a threshold that has to be met before the tipping point can be pushed over, right? And, and you know the fact that these companies are even doing this, I think, is com- should be commended. I mean, that doesn't mean that we should give them a free pass. Like, Ener- an Energizer isn't expecting that. Like, Energizer isn't saying, "All right, we made it to four percent, we're done." Like, they're still pushing the envelope. But it's still, I think, important to give credit where it's due and. A lot of these companies are, are taking steps in this direction, not just because it sounds good, but because it makes business sense. Uh, you know, especially you know as we move into a world that's going to have you know by 2050, where the world's going to have nine billion people in it. Uh, you know, resources are going to be increasingly scarce. It makes business sense to to operate your business in the real world and not the way it's been for you know the last hundred years. Most companies have operated as if we live in a world of, of infinite resources. And you know, with fluctuating costs of, of virgin materials, especially with the electronics industry, where they're dealing with a lot of rare earth minerals that there literally just aren't that ma- there aren't that many of these materials in the world. 
to, to meet demands, it makes business sense for them to invest in this now so that, you know, 50 years from now, they're not, they're not basically screwed. You know, they can't find the materials they need to maintain their supply chains. It is true, like you alluded to right now, we're looking at these voluntary actions um, sort of vary in degrees of ambition. It will be one thing that will be interesting to watch is I know there are regulators, like especially the European Union is very Mm -hmm. plugged into this right now. Should they be pushing sort of the policy or regulatory side of this? We don't know. We'll have to see about that. Um, But one other thing I wanted to ask you about, Mike, uh, was sort of the the startup or the maybe more disruptive entrance that you're seeing in this space. Uh, One other thing you brought up was sort of how the sharing economy potentially dovetails with the circular economy. So where do you see all this sort of heading next? Yeah. So I, I'm, as I have a background working with a lot of startups, so I'm, I'm very, I'm very much a a pro startup guy. Not that I'm an anti big brand guy, but what I do love about startups is that they have the nimbleness to, to do things that big brands might not be able to do right away. Uh, I was at a conference recently where someone created a really good analogy saying that, you know, the startups are kind of like the tugboats that, that can kind of push the, the big ships of, of industry in a different direction. And I really do think that kind of in the circular economy context that, that you're seeing this a lot, like companies like Thread and Loopworks, where they're, uh, you know, so Thread, what they're doing is they're taking – um, they're actually, what I love about them is they're a certified B corporation. They, uh, they, they're trying to address social environmental problems in, in the developing world. So they started in Haiti and now they're also in Honduras where there's a you know, huge trash problem, particularly with, with plastic. And so they're, they're finding ways where they're, they're taking mostly plastic bottles from, from Haiti and Honduras and use and repurposing that into what they call responsible fabric that could be used in consumer products. And they actually partnered with Timberland uh, recently to use these upcycle materials in footwear. And uh, Timberland likes it because, I mean, there's a, there's a couple benefits. A, these days, being able to, to, to market to your, your customers that, hey, this came from a responsible, you know, this is responsible fabric, that sells. And also, it, it's, it's a, they're creating a steady supply chain of, of materials. And that, that's, that's the thing that Thread has been really good at is, uh, you know, they're not just picking up bottles here and there. They actually have a, a really steady supply of this coming in uh, that is both creating jobs for locals in these countries where there, you know, there's a lot of poverty, which is good. But then it's also, you know, creating a steady stream uh, for these big brands. And it's also getting it's also kind of, I think it, it's kind of a, a snowball effect where, you know, and Timberland's also a good example because they're not they're, they're they kind of this is part of their ethos as a company. They're very good at, you know, they do their Timberland tires thing like they're. They've been very good about you know circular economic things in, in their background, but I, I think that as more and more big companies see that this can work, they're going to be more likely to embrace it. That's where I think startups are, are good at, at helping companies kind of shock them out of their the status quo and move them in a new direction. Definitely, lots of interesting threads to follow here. Uh, senior writer Mike Hauer, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lauren. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find links to the organization stories, events, and other things that we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks again to our podcast director, Soraya Melkonian. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, for all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day.